0: Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to What's Up Next, where your hosts, Paul David Thompson and Doc G, take the discussion on topics in the financial independence movement to the next level. Guest panelists share their opinion to questions that don't have clear answers to help you refine your path to financial independence.
1: Welcome, this is Paul David Thompson from Ready Investor One. And this is Doc G from diversify.com. So, Paul Thompson, what's up next? Well, Doc, we're having an interesting conversation today where I'm going to dig deeper into your past. And you will be the primary panelist or really the only panelist on here. And I would like to learn more about you because I have found out that your past, our past, has largely influenced the, the way we are running this podcast and the kinds of episodes that we choose to have. And so I would like to learn more about you and share what I've learned about you with our audience. So one thing that many people might be surprised if you've ever heard Doc G or been around Doc G is that he actually struggled with some sort of a a learning disability. And it's not something that I, I would have thought was even in the realm of possibility, Doc, so do you mind sharing that story with the audience, please?
0: Yeah, many people don't notice, know this about me, but I struggled with a learning disability for a good part of my early childhood. And I remember very clearly when I first knew there was something wrong. I was in kindergarten and we were going out for recess. And in my kindergarten class, we took off our shoes while we were in the classroom. So everyone was putting their shoes on and I couldn't remember how to tie my shoe. And it became a regular thing that one of my classmates would have to sit down with me and tie my shoes every time we went out for recess. And I was having trouble with visual spatial memory. I couldn't remember the steps to tie the laces. And I remember this being kind of the first indication that something was wrong. And as we went further in school, and especially when we started to look at reading, I realized that... I couldn't do it the way the other kids did. I would write the letters upside down or backwards. So I had a lot of difficulty and it was something that teachers noticed immediately. Uh, they knew something was wrong. Uh, they knew that I wasn't quite on par with the rest of my classmates.
1: So was this a diagnosed disability that you had at some point or how how did it actually shape out in your life? Because I, I've seen sent some of this before in my in my life and it takes a while for those kind of things to be be discovered?
0: So, you know, I was lucky in the sense that I had teachers who were very aware. Uh, My dad was a doctor and my mom was a professional, and they all kind of were very in tune to what was going on with me. Mm. So we all knew something was wrong, and the school system was really good about this. They provided us with what was called neuropsychological testing. And eventually, I live in Evanston. We went over to Northwestern, the university center. And they did extensive testing on me. And they realized early that my intelligence level was fine. It wasn't a matter of intelligence. It was just I learned differently. And they realized that for me, basic reading would just be harder than it was for other people.
1: Okay, so how did that uh, shape out in your life? And what kind of, do you have any specific moments where you kind of realized that you were not doing the way that you should?
0: I I would say there were so many different moments as a kid. I I got really frustrated. Uh, My mom would say that she would sit there and watch me trying to read and write, and I would get sweaty, and I would work on it, and I'd look at her and say, Mom, I knew how to do this yesterday, Hmm. but I can't do it today. And so there were many, many of these little moments moments of just frustration and trying to figure out why everyone else around me could do this thing that I just couldn't wrap my mind around. Now, this was years ago. You know, I was six, seven years old. Mm. Uh, it's very distant memories. And I don't have a lot of memories from that time of my life, but I can remember that sense of frustration. But right. all that has to be balanced against the fact that I had all these adults in my life who were looking after me. And helping me. So, the school system immediately actually assigned me two separate tutors uh, so that when my friends were in the reading class, I would go to a different room and meet with two special tutors who would start working on my abilities. And then my mom went out and researched on her own and found this wonderful lady named Phyllis who I would see once a week from like first or second grade all the way to fifth grade. And every week, I would go to her, and this was an amazing lady. She is, in retrospect, I call her the first true healer that I ever encountered. Uh, Because I would come to her office in the middle of a Chicago winter, and she would have pretzels and hot cocoa waiting for me. (laughs) And I would sit down, and she would put in front of me what I thought were a series of games, right? So I thought I was playing games and having fun, but actually what she was teaching me, was memorization. She was teaching me logic, eventually arithmetic and reading. So I have these magical memories of going to see this wonderful person. And as opposed to those frustrating memories I have from early on, I have all these wonderful memories of learning and growing in that little office that I went to once a week. Where she taught me, but she taught me in such a way that it didn't feel painful or scary or hurtful. It felt welcoming. And I definitely can say that as a physician, I have many, many different role models, but that first tutor I had is a true role model of what it felt like to deal with a healer, to deal with someone who looked at me as a whole and tried to help fix something that I thought was horribly wrong with myself.
1: Yeah. As you were talking there, I was noticing this, not this sense of frustration about your past, but that you were looking back on your past favorably. And it sounds like, is it Phyllis? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Phyllis had a profound impact on your life. Where in this span of time, you mentioned between the first and fifth grade, where in there did your father die?
0: So it was in second grade, I believe, if I remember correctly. And I I can remember the day, you know, the day started just like any other day. And I was in class and the message came that I had to go to the principal's office. And so I'm sitting in the principal's office. And again, I don't remember a lot about that time period of my life, but I can remember looking up and counting the little tiles on the ceiling as I'm waiting, and then a family friend walks in. And I remember thinking how strange it was, because she just had no reason to be at the school, right? This was one of our family friends who didn't live in our school district, who didn't have kids my age. And so she walks in, and she looks at the secretary for the principal, and she kind of collects me up, and I'm looking at her confused. And she said something to the sense of, you know, something's happened to your father. And then she took me home. And eventually, we went to go see him. And he was in a coma at that time. My father had a subarachnoid hemorrhage. It means that he had a weak blood vessel in his brain. He had went to work like normal. My father, the physician, was rounding at the hospital when he got a severe headache and collapsed. By the time they got him to the emergency room his vital signs had stabilized, but the bleeding in his brain had caused all sorts of damage. Uh, And he ended up living for another day or two on life support before it was decided to stop everything. By that time, I had gone back to school. Uh, But I remember the day coming home and having all my family members sitting in the living room and just quiet. And then my mom took me aside and said, you know, your dad, he's died. And I was seven years old. I mean, I didn't know any different. And I looked over to my brother, who was a few years older than me, and he was sitting quietly amongst my relatives, and no one was really saying anything. Um, And it never really hit me, the meaning of that day, until my eldest brother got home, who was in, I think, middle school by that time. So, he was a little bit older. Right. And I remember my mom taking him into our little den and closing the door and telling him, and I, I... I remember him crying and it was the strangest thing because for me and I think for my brother Andrew we were just too young uh, and I don't think we knew what to think and it was only when I heard him that I knew something was wrong like I couldn't I couldn't visualize what all this was until until I heard him and then I knew that our lives had changed
1: well I can only imagine how that shaped your your life, what and how has that influenced your path towards living a, um, a life of meaning and purpose?
0: So I, I think it's had a huge effect on me. And, you know, I have lots of theories about how we deal with our past. You know, I look at our lives and say, you know, a lot of things happen to us that we can't control. Like having a learning disability was something I couldn't do anything about. Right. And my father dying was something I couldn't do anything about. But we can interpret those life events, and that can propel us into our future. And so when I look at learning, having a learning disability, I could look at it as this you know horrible hand of cards that I was dealt. But instead, I look at meeting this true healer this Phyllis or I look at the group of adults who came together, the tutors at my school and my teacher and my mom and my dad while he was still alive. Everyone kind of came together and rallied around me. So instead of looking back at that part of life as sad or difficult, I kind of feel it was uplifting. Like I was born with this thing that was difficult and instead of it beating me, instead of it being this horrendous life sentence, it showed me about the goodness of people who care around me. And I I look at my father dying the same. Of course, my father dying was a horrible thing. And of course, I would never have wished that upon myself. On the other hand, my father died when I was seven or eight years old. And it was at the time that I idolized him and he was a doctor. And so I wanted to be a doctor even before he died. And then when mm. he died, it just, it made this idea concrete in my head that that's what I was going to do with my life. It, it gave me a sudden purpose. I was going to pick up the torch where he had dropped it and I was going to go into patient care and I was going to change lives And if he had lived longer, who knows? Maybe I would have become a teenager. Maybe I would have fought with him. Maybe I would have developed those other dreams that teenagers have, and I might have done something completely different with my life. But that's not what happened. And I choose to look at it as the magic that made me who I became. So out of my father's death built in me this resolve, this resolve that even though I had a learning disability, even though I had these issues, uh, that I could overcome them, and not only overcome them, but I could thrive. And everything in my life has been touched by this, Uh, but I think in positive ways. I mean, I look where I am now. What do I do now for a living? Mostly, I take care of hospice patients. Um, I take care of people at the end of life. And even in many ways, I think that I transitioned to this career because I had a certain sensitivity to helping people lose their loved ones. My father died suddenly. I didn't get that chance. Now, as an adult, I get to help people in hospice, help families and patients deal with death and plan for it and try to help people create good deaths instead of bad ones. Uh, And so to me, all this is somewhat magical, certainly not sad. There are moments of sadness surrounding it, but this is some of the great stuff that's made me who I've become.
1: Yeah, and you use the word shaped. And I, I like that because our past so much shaped the, the, our direction in life. And there is another aspect of your life that I was not aware of until just a couple of weeks ago is that your, your family is also Jewish. And I, that's not something that I've ever heard you talk about before. I, I can only imagine that shaped your path as well.
0: Yeah, you know, I don't really talk about religion much. And the reason why is I grew up not feeling like religion ever spoke to me. So my father uh, was very much into religion. And when he died, it was important to my mother uh, that we continue worshiping, that we continued some of the traditional uh, aspects of Judaism. But I always had issues with it. I remember going to Sunday school and we would be learning our Sunday school lessons and the teacher would say something like, well, the Jewish people are the chosen people. And I I remember looking at them and saying, what do you mean by that? I mean, how can you say one group of people are more chosen than the other? And I just remember feeling it was illogical and didn't speak to me. And in some ways, you know, I had become really sensitive to this idea of how we separate people. And part of that was that I grew up in this area in Evanston, Evanston, Illinois, where I live. And Evanston is an incredibly racially diverse city. But strangely enough, in the part of Evanston I lived growing up, I was probably the only Jewish kid in my school. And I remember feeling that. I remember being made fun of and being ostracized. There was a good two or three years in my life in which being Jewish was a major problem for me. People made fun of me. They didn't want to play with me. I remember going home from school feeling really lonely. And it wasn't just me. It was my siblings too. I remember my older brother got into a fight and I think he broke a finger because he hit someone in the face because they were hmm. you know, making fun of him because he was Jewish. It was never horrendous. I never felt unsafe, and these same people who were making fun of me would also be friendly with me sometimes when they were alone and weren't with a big group. But it definitely played a role in how I look at the ways in which we separate people. And again, you can look at your past and decide that it was horrible and bad, or you can look at it as a learning device and a learning tool. So coming out of childhood... I had this strong belief that we can't separate people because of the religion or the race. And it created an openness in me to learn about and respect other cultures and other people. And even as an adult now, I feel it's very important to always be open to other people and who they are and what they're about. And I don't know if I would be this open if I hadn't gone through some of that.
1: Well, that, that, it's interesting because I was not raised in an environment where there where Jewish people were treated differently. There were some Jewish people in the communities and schools that I went to. Uh, so it's always kind of certainly the Jewish people have had a history of being uh, uh, <laughs> oppressed for sure, but I have not witnessed it personally. So that I, I don't resonate with it. And I'm not sure if the audience would or does either, or maybe I'm just the exception, but I'm very curious, as you're growing up, how does does one even be called out for being Jewish? Is it just because you go to the synagogue instead of the church on the weekends, or do you look different? Do you dress differently?
0: Yeah, I don't remember how people specifically knew I was Jewish. There was, you know, there was a moment in time, and it strangely was fairly political. It was in the early 1980s and the moment I remember most clearly is Jesse Jackson was actually giving a speech Mm -hmm. and he referred to, I believe it must've been New York, but he referred to New York as Town to describe how many Jews were there. Right, And, you know, it's funny because I don't know a huge amount about Jesse Jackson, but it, it never hit me is that that was one of his issues. Um, right, right. It, it, it wasn't, I, I never looked at, at him as a person said, oh boy, he doesn't like Jewish people. But I remember politically when that happened, it was like all of a sudden everyone knew I was Jewish. And it was the mm. strangest thing because in my mind, I can remember that speech, that Time he said that as being kind of like the beginning of when all of a sudden people started looking at me and saying, Oh, you're different, and that's strange. And it only played out for a certain number of years. So, you know, my elementary school was in one part of Evanston, and that part of Evanston had almost no Jewish people. But by the time I got to middle school, there were kids from all sorts of other parts of Evanston coming in, and there were a lot of Jewish people from those areas. I see. So it instantaneously became okay. In fact, when I was in middle school, I got bar mitzvah, right? So, as a Jew, as when you're Jewish and you go to Sunday school and Hebrew school, when you turn 13, there is a ceremony which marks the passage from boy to man. Uh, and you learn Hebrew scripture and you read it up on the dais in front of a bunch of people. And so, this is a big rite of passage for Jewish people. And I remember those same people who made fun of me, who wouldn't talk to me for a few years in elementary school, wanted to go to my bar mitzvah and then go to the party afterwards. Um, So there was a big change in people's feelings about it just over the few years, and it was a one small isolated part of the city. And as we moved to a bigger school, it became very much accepted. So again, it's not like the long-term consequences were so great. It's not like I was in such a horrible position, but it certainly awakened in me this interest in celebrating people's differences as opposed to being afraid of them.
1: I really like the the phrase that you said there, uh, celebrating people's differences, because that has, I would say, become and it wasn't intentional on my part but it, uh, it, it it has become a kind of undertone of the podcast that we do now with what's up next is to be very inclusive and to be aware of that we are in this fire movement and if the movement doesn't include all the all the different parties that could i could attend it's not really <laughs> a movement um, what, what are your thoughts on that
0: Yeah, I agree. I don't know if I specifically go at it to be all-inclusive, although I will tell you I certainly pay attention a lot to which voices we bring on. And there have been times where I've had a panel and I look back and say, oh, man, that was four men. Why couldn't I have found a woman to be on it? Or I look at another panel and say, boy, you know, maybe we could find another race or culture that would add nicely to the discussion. So I'm definitely thoughtful about it. But I'll also tell you that a lot of my personal interest lies in realizing that there are lots of different subcultures to this culture that we call financial independence in our community. And my fear is that it's really easy to ignore subcultures or not even know they exist unless you pay attention to them. And I've told you this story before, Paul, but I'll repeat it again when I first started practicing, I started practicing in my local community here in Evanston. And I had a practice. And I had a patient, a patient, he was a black male in his 40s. And he died suddenly. And it was completely unexpected. And I knew his wife and I knew his family. And I decided to do something I don't normally do is I decided to go to his funeral because it was so unexpected and I just felt so horrible about the whole situation. And his funeral was literally a few blocks away from my house. And I go and I drive over to this funeral and I walk in the door and I look around and it's me and about 500 other people and they're all black and I'm the only white person there. And As I looked around and looked at people laughing and crying and celebrating and doing all the things that people do at funerals, it just hit me that this was a whole community right in front of my face, right in my neighborhood that I grew up with, and I had no idea it existed. Mm -hmm. I knew that Evanston was racially integrated. I knew there were black people and white people and Asian people. I knew all of that. But when I walked into this place of worship, I realized that there was this whole world that had existed right next to my mind, mine that I had spent no time understanding and had spent no time getting to know. And as I left that funeral, I realized that if I was going to be a good father and a good doctor and a good neighbor... I needed to be more aware of the communities around me. That didn't mean that I had to insert myself into that community because maybe I didn't even fit in that community, but it meant that I had to pay homage to it and respect it and get to know and understand it. And that's kind of how I look at doing this podcast and the personal finance community. I talk all the time about our community and it's so easy for me to do that because I'm looking at it under my lens right and my lens is a very specific lens and so with these kind of conversations i'm also hoping to broaden that lens and to introduce some of the other communities and me personally to get to know those communities because it's so easy to not even think they're there it's so easy to be caught in your own thought processes uh, and miss this rich, vibrant fabric we have surrounding us. So just like that patient of mine who taught me that there were many communities right in my neighborhood that I didn't know about, I'm hoping with this podcast that we can introduce some of our listeners to some of those other vibrant communities that exist right there under our noses. that's M-O-N-A-R-C-H M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting because you you are the in our roles on this podcast, you are the one that spends most of the time shaping and deciding who is invited, and I do more of the back office stuff. So walk the the audience through what you're going through and kind of and actually what you do to to pull this panel together because I'm not sure everybody quite realizes how involved it is in, <laughs> to, to coordinate everybody.
0: Yeah, I, I think the first step is coming up with an idea. So, usually, there is a topic or an issue that I feel is germane to our community that either really interests me or hopefully that no one's talking about. So, the first is to come up with a great idea. Once I come up with that idea or question, next I try to find a group of people who could have an engaging conversation, sitting around a dinner table, drinking a beer or wine, talking about life in general. Who would I want sitting at that table to talk about this question? And so people don't realize, a lot of times I'll invite someone onto the podcast and I'll tell them the subject and they'll say, well, that's not my topic or that's not what I write about. Mm -hmm. But interestingly enough, I really try to find people who I believe can talk about a topic, but it's not necessarily an angle they've looked at before, or it's not necessarily always 100% in their wheelhouse. Because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get real people with differing and interesting viewpoints and bring them together to have a rich conversation. And so once I think about the different people I'm interested in having on, it's a series of text messages. (laughs) I try to get them through Twitter or I try to get them through Facebook or if I have to, I go to their contact page and send them an email. And then this jockeying goes on to find three or four people who fit and then find a time and a place that we can do it and then coordinate my schedule and your schedule because a lot of these podcast panels, it requires us to get six people at the same place, and at the same time, and then we schedule it, and I usually don't think about that episode again until a few days before, and then I go back and look at everybody's content that we're having on the panel, and I try to draw differences and connections and interesting topics for us to touch on. Uh, So, for me, I really need to study their content to come up with some ideas and plans for a conversation that touches on what they're interested in and brings to light some of their best thoughts and content. But that also creates an engaging, interesting story that has some type of arc, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't want to just talk randomly for an hour. Uh, We hope to start with a question and come to an answer or at least come to a series of answers based on that question. So it's quite in depth. We, we actually spend a lot of time trying to get everybody together to come up with a good topic and then to create an arc for an episode that's engaging.
1: Yeah. And it's a delicate balance, isn't it? of Trying to get the right people on and then not just pepper them with questions and have them talk amongst themselves like where we were really just at a dinner table someplace. Uh, and that's that's the kind of thing we're trying to, to foster. So you usually start off asking questions and then we kind of riff from there. That's kind of the the model that, that we have. When you're starting the story arc, what is it that you're thinking about getting to, or what's your thought process on, on creating the story?
0: So usually I try to find a question that's very germane to our audience. So for instance, I might look at, you know, is college worthwhile or, We might look at how does gender play in your financial independence pathway. And so I'll first think about everything I know. I'll try to come up with what I think the answer is to that question. And I'll take my own answers and use those to create a series of questions. And then I'll dive into the content of our prospective panelists and see how that shapes the discussion. So I often try to allow their content to change what I think or at least open my mind up to what I believe the true answer is. But once we actually get on air, I have a series of questions that may or may not lead the conversation in one direction. But once you're there and people are talking, the goal is actually to follow their lead. Right. So I, both of us, I think, come to these conversations with ideas of where the conversation is going to go. But I think we would be remiss if we kept on pushing the conversation to where we want it to go, because then it would just be you and I talking. Right. Uh, I think in the end, we have to let the panelists push the conversation where they want to go. And then you and I need to be agile enough to ask questions that, that flush that out a little more.
1: And what do you want our, our guests, our And well, two questions, actually, what do you want our guests to get out of it? And then secondly, what do you want our audience to get out of the conversation?
0: So I think the biggest thing that people probably don't realize is one way I think we measure success with this podcast is how excited the guests are after they've come on. So nothing makes, I think, either of us more happy than when a guest finishes off the panel And at the end, they say, wow, this was a great conversation. I really enjoyed this. Uh, Because that's kind of what we're trying to create is this collegial get together over friends where we can talk about cool stuff. So for me, I think that's a big part of it is creating a situation where the guests can feel like they're relaxing and having an enjoyable conversation that they get something out of. For our listeners, I think there are a few different goals. Uh, I think one of the goals, obviously, is to be engaged and to be entertained. I think another major goal is for them to look at these issues maybe from an angle they've never looked at them before. And so for them to hear people maybe they know, maybe they don't know, but talk about something in a different way to broaden their worldview, uh, to bring clarity maybe to an issue that's bothered them in the past. And you and I have talked a lot about this in the past too. But part of what I want the audience actually to get out of this is to have a better understanding of who we are as the podcast hosts. So you and I, in a sense we develop these shows but we are not front and center especially when we have a panel of four people the right. idea is that you and I fade to the background we're supposed to be the question askers and we mold the conversation a lot of ways but most of our audience members don't really get an in-depth idea of who we are um, so we can fulfill that need in a few ways one is after the panel is over We like to do our outro in which we talk about the different issues um, and people get a good sense for who we are through those. And then, of course, we have these episodes where we talk about ourselves more and we open up about who we are and what we're about. But I'd also like to add that, at least when it comes to me, more than you're going to learn from listening to me On this episode or any other episode where I've been interviewed but if you want to know who I am really the podcast subjects and the panelists and the things we talk to are much more a reflection of who I am than anything you're gonna hear me interviewed on and so I like to say you know when we do a conversation on gender and what it's like to be a woman in the financial independence community that kind of harkens back to me being brought up by a single mother after my father died. And I watched her dealing with the finances. I remember when my father died, she had started planning on how she was going to pay for college for us. And she was going to sell our house and live in a small apartment so that she'd have enough money to pay for college for us. When you see me setting up a podcast, which is coming up soon about the loss of a loved one and what it does to our financial plan. That's a lot about me. That's my story when my dad died and we had to adjust and we had to worry about finances. When you hear us do a podcast, another one coming up in the future of what it's like to be African American in the financial independence community, that's me. You know, As a young kid being Jewish and being made fun of and then growing up and feeling this sensitivity to understand the different communities we live in. So if you want to know who we are, a big part of this podcast, through our subjects, through our topics, through all these conversations, they're a big reflection of who we are as people.
1: Absolutely. And I'd like to transition this a little bit to talk about the transition that you're going through in your life. And we didn't talk about this beforehand, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to surprise you with this question. But you're in the midst of a, a life change. You're you're going through a season of life where your kids are about to, I mean, it's five, five years out, right? But your kid, five, 10 years, your kids are going to transition out of home. You are pulling back from work and you're diving into this financial independence world? You're blogging uh, uh, daily. You're doing a podcast once a week. You're speaking. Where are you going with that? Or do you even know? And why are you making that transition in life?
0: So this transition is coming for a lot of different reasons. Um, One is that I've always lived my life with this duality. One of the magical stories of my childhood, as we've said earlier in this podcast, is that my father died and it made concrete in me this idea of becoming a physician, of picking up his torch and helping people. And that dream carried me through college and medical school and residency. But as I started practicing, I realized that I have a true passion for being physician, but maybe it isn't exactly what I was meant to do. And that was a really hard conclusion to come to. It was really hard to look at probably the thing that I'm best in the world doing and say that this is not per se my purpose. It's part of my purpose and it's part of my identity. But as I got more burned out in medicine and realized that it had its limitations, I started looking at other parts of me that hadn't had the chance to grow yet And one of those big parts of me that's always been trying to push its way forward, but I've always pushed right back down, is this aspect of communication. I like to communicate with other people. Uh, Writing is a big way in which I do that. And I lament that maybe being a physician was the thing that I'm best at, but maybe writing was the thing that I was meant to do. Mm. And they're not exactly the same. As we developed this podcast I found my voice and found that I like being on the airwaves. I like to sit back and talk about these things. I like to help try to mold the conversation and I have all these stories from childhood and medical school and I like to tell these stories. So I like to public speak. I like to get up in front of audiences, take those most intimate vulnerable stories that I have and create them into a story. That helps people, whether it helps them deal with the doctor patient relationship, whether it helps them with burnout, whether it helps them with their finances, it doesn't matter. The point is, I like to be part of that conversation. So, as I've come to all these conclusions, I also learned about financial independence. And through reading blogs and reading books, I got a lot more confident with my finances, and I realized that. I could really pull back majorly on the practicing as a physician, still have enough money to live and open up my life to all those other things. So you kind of ask, well, where am I headed to now? Um, I'm headed to a place where I can practice this love and passion of communication more. Hmm. I can hold on to that part of my identity and purpose that are being a physician by doing hospice work. The way I do it as a contracted medical professional, I don't necessarily have to spend as many hours and my schedule is a lot more controllable. And I can focus on my family. As you were saying, my kids are 11 and 14. At some point, they're going to leave the house. I can focus on my relationship with my wife. A big part of this transition also is... Moving away from what I call the achievement treadmill, I've spent my whole life being an achievement junkie. From moment to moment, I've bounced from achievement to achievement. And while it's made me happy for short periods of time, it's also made me realize that just like any other treadmill, the achievements will never stop coming and the goals will always be there. And there's always another mountain to climb, but at some point it stops feeling good. Yeah. And so what I've really been trying to do is to learn to be happy with imperfection instead of setting these big audacious goals. I'm trying to set smaller goals and I'm really trying to enjoy the pathway a lot more. For instance, with this podcast, I'm really trying to take every episode one at a time and to try to enjoy being in the moment and enjoy our guests and enjoy our conversations and stop worrying so much about what comes next. And that's hard for me. It's hard for me as a 45-year-old to say that I'm going to stop reaching as far. And I'm sure that won't be forever. There are always going to be goals Sometimes those are going to be big, unreachable goals, and I don't want to remove those from my life either because I think that does bring some joy. But also, I'm also learning to give myself a little bit of a pass. I mean, what I try to teach my children, I'm trying to listen to myself, which is you are good innately from the beginning. What you achieve or don't achieve can't change that. And so I'm trying to embrace that myself and try to embrace positive feelings about who I am and disconnect those necessarily from, you know, which check mark I can put in front of which box. And so I don't know what the future holds. I certainly know that I'm enjoying what I'm doing now. Uh, I plan to keep doing it in the future. Uh, But as you and I know, life is unpredictable. And God knows what's going to happen in the next week, month, or year. Uh, That I'm going to jump at because it's exciting and interesting and something I want to do.
1: So I'll uh, ask you one last question. Uh, I kind of think of you as the resident philosopher of our movement. You 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 always take this direction of kind of the idea, the why behind five versus going into the mechanics. So as a parting gift to our to our audience, if you could distill down your philosophy into a few sentences and something to have the audience take away, what would that be?
0: Build meaning and purpose in your life from day one and the money will come. I think it's that simple. And if the money doesn't come, you'll be happy anyway because you'll have meaning and purpose. So it all comes back to the idea that money is just a way to help us reach our goals If you can have well-defined goals that make you feel good, that make you feel connected, if you can start with those from day one, everything else will be okay.
1: Well, then we'll wrap up with that. And normally this is your role, but this time I'll say on behalf of Doc G and Paul David Thompson, we would like to thank you, Doc G, for being on the What's Up Next podcast. That's a wrap. As a
0: longtime foreign correspondent,